0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. And I just want to say right off the bat, again, we've just been receiving an uptick of communication from you, our listeners, and it's been such a delight to hear from so many of you. And actually, the episode we're doing today on the New Apostolic Reformation and modern monasticism and how the church can really impact society today, this comes directly from Jeff. So uh, thank you, Jeff, for reaching out and giving us Putting this on our radar, so we've got a slate of episodes that's starting to line up um, based on just listener feedback. And so, if you're listening to this, and there's been a topic on your mind that you've wrestled with or think that would be advantageous for the body of Christ in this hour, then please uh, feel free to reach out. I would also love to hear how has this podcast been beneficial to you or to those in your circles. I would love to hear those stories as well. Certainly, encouraging as we continue to, to do this uh, podcast. So with that as a setup, Drew, why don't you kick us off for today?
1: This is a unique topic in that, on the one hand, it's it's fairly narrow, talking about, basically, an, a tough to define sub-movement within the Pentecostal world. So it's, it's a narrow topic at surface value, and even a lot of people who grew up in charismatic circles may not entirely be familiar with it. But I do think it sheds light on a bigger topic of how does the church influence society and what are different approaches to that? And we've hit this from different angles before, but I appreciate the opportunity today to to maybe look at it afresh. So let me start with what is the New Apostolic Reformation or NAR, which just that's a great sounding acronym. And, And you know, the challenge to this term is it's a very recent term. I think it started with C. Peter Wagner, who was a missiologist at Fuller Seminary out in California, and a pioneer in a lot of the um, material out there on things like spiritual mapping or this like prophetic intercessory type conversations. And so he had this idea, he was trying to make sense of a broader movement that we now would refer to as third wave charismatic movement where you'd see groups like the Vineyard or things like that where there's this real uptick and explosion coming out of the even larger Jesus movement of the 70s and was prompting some kind of a renewed charismatic Uh, Movement, And they called it the third wave, because when you um, study the the broader Pentecostal tradition, you had classic Pentecostals that would trace their origins to Azusa Street. Then you had the charismatic renewal movements, which largely took place in other denominations. So I I think actually it first emerged in the Episcopal Church. But basically what started to happen is denominations started having outpourings of the Spirit— but they remained within those denominations, or maybe eventually formed something new. But there's still a very large and vibrant charismatic Catholic renewal movement that's taking place all over the world, and you'll see this in other denominations as well. So then the third wave comes along. Typically, these are independent churches. A lot of them emerge from an evangelical background, but rather than being something like the charismatic Catholic renewal, where it's still very much within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, these um, broke off to form new groups and at times new denominations like the Vineyard or new independent churches. And so both Mick and I serve here at Antioch Church in Waco, Texas, and we would fit within this third wave charismatic renewal movement. So on the one hand, Peter Wagner and others are they are in the early days of this. It's really taking off, and there's a lot of different groups. Then on the other side, you have some of his own interest in writing, where he's really writing as an academic who is both experiencing this renewal movement, but then also trying to study it. And so he coined this phrase. He would say that basically as it got coined, the people who really seized onto it were actually his opponents. So people who were critiquing him were the ones who tended to use this phrase. So whenever you come across New Apostolic Reformation or NAR, probably one of the greatest features of it is that it's mainly a pejorative term. And so it's a term that's applied when so, somebody's going to use it to try to discredit somebody else. To my knowledge, there are actually no Christians who use this as a self-identifier. So anytime you come across that, that should always give you pause. Just It doesn't mean that there's not some uh, validity maybe to some of the skeptics or critics of the New Apostolic Reformation, and I think you could probably say there might be some features within certain segments of the charismatic world that this is a label that's used to apply to some of those features. And so I think that's a fair argument to make, and that's where we'll drill into here in a second. However, I do think it's worth noting that, that unlike other theological movements like, uh, I'll take liberation theology, which we've talked about several times, you know that, that's a term where there's a lot of theologians and Christians who that is how they would self-identify as may, at least a significant descriptive part of what they believe. And there's other branches, you know, just movements that have occurred in the last 50 years where there's a core of people who own it whether theologically own it or even in practice, they would own the major tenets of it, and then together they kind of form this group and they're working out the ramifications of it. So to my knowledge, that is not happening with the New Apostolic Reformation. And if you actually get online, so if you were to Google it, basically everything you're going to come across is negative. So there's not, I don't think, uh, you're not going to probably find somebody advocating for the New Apostolic Reformation. It's mainly people criticizing it. And then a lot of what you'll also find are People who, you know, there's this cottage industry of self-proclaimed heresy hunters, which are, you know, I am fairly negative towards. I don't think most of them are fair, and heresy can quickly become anything that I don't agree with. But there's these websites, you know, that I don't even know where they come from, but it's really funny to me because I'll read who all they list as being part of the New Apostolic Reformation, and as somebody who's an insider in the charismatic world, it's hilarious. Like, this just wide range of people where they're talking about you know Kenneth Copeland alongside Bill Johnson alongside Mike Bickle who are all very very different in what they believe and what they teach and so to try to group them together under a banner like this uh, you're going to have some real challenges so that's all some background information on what this is how it fits i think it does expose a potential challenge when you're trying to make sense of the pentecostal and charismatic renewal movements and that they're very large and they're relatively new it's just hard sometimes to organize it into consistent streams of thoughts. And, uh, you know, you have other denominations that have been around for hundreds of years, and so the, maybe the tracks have been laid a little bit more clearly. And if you look, like I, I was looking at some of these numbers, the number of worldwide Baptists is 100 million. And, you know, they're the most influential evangelical denomination the Southern Baptist Convention is. Um, this is a, the total number of Baptist-affiliated groups. So it's 100 million around the world. And then in the United States, that's most prominently represented by the Southern Baptist Convention. And, you know, for us, so that's really significant. And I think a lot of people are aware there's vast differences between, uh, you know, somebody like Russell Moore, as an example, who was the, until recently the head of the Ethics and Religion Committee. And on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, Fundamentalist Baptist or the King James only. And so we look at a group like the Baptist and the people who would identify as Baptist, because they've been around a long time, we can better understand how they fit together and how they organize. And even then, Baptists are a little more complex than other groups like Catholic, since Baptist churches are autonomous and the different Baptist conventions, it's always hard to quite know where things fit. But when you compare that to the Pentecostals, that's 650 million, so at least today, so six to seven times more than the number of Baptist, and it's all relatively new, and there's different, as I said earlier, waves of how it grew around the world. And so all that leads to just a difficulty in trying to fully identify or label branches of Pentecostalism. Because even then, you know, there's a lot of overlap at times with Baptist or with other groups. So how do we make sense of it all? And I think for people, I, there's a lot of stuff that, I, like I said earlier, people are just using it to critique all Pentecostals and Charismatics. Um, I saw one group that said it's a synonym for the Charismatic Renewal. I just started laughing when I read that. However, I think a few consistent themes that probably have some more validity and weight that are worth exploring. One is that it's closely tied to doctrine of dominionism. This is the idea that Christians are called and commanded by God to take over and to rule on the earth. Now, this can get expressed in a lot of different ways. So as far as I know, all branches of the church are believing for the kingdom of God to be established on the earth. Even liberal theologians, like this is a driving force behind it, is they're working for justice so that the principles of God's kingdom can be established on the earth. So there's not any branch of Christianity that I'm aware of that doesn't contend that Christ is king and he wants to establish his kingdom. The question is how he's going to do that. So where, uh, you know, liberal theologian, they might approach that and say that the way that God does that is that it's a partnership with the world around the principles of Christ and other God-fearing people, and uh, together we want to work for justice. You know, you, you have that branch. Or on the other side, you have some much stronger, maybe more conservative Christians. Their belief is that that only happens after Christ returns. And then he comes and he establishes the millennial kingdom on the earth where Jesus reigns over all things for a thousand years. So by that frame, actually, they're saying Christians aren't going to have power. In fact, they're going to be a persecuted remnant. And then Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom. Um, There's a whole host of other views. So this topic is consistent for all Christians to wrestle with, but dominionism, or at least how it's interpreted in certain circles, what it is going for is that actually in the here and now... What Christians are supposed to do is to utilize both their supernatural power as well as natural power, at least those two get blended together, and they're supposed to work their way into key positions of authority and power so that they can influence culture for the sake of the
0: kingdom. So maybe in summary so far, Drew, what I hear you saying is that you know we have this kind of third wave charismatic movement of which our our specific expression here in Waco could be labeled under and then within that you have these kind of various classifications maybe of how this movement engages with culture and maybe certain eschatological expectations you know big word just meaning kind of end times or how is society progressing? What's the church's posture relative to culture? And we've done an episode specifically on that, actually a couple, if you go back about a year, year and a half ago. I think some of this has to do with notions of power and influence. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, I think that's the heart of it, and I think that's the heart of people's concern. So there's been this fairly conservative theological attack or critique on the new apostolic Reformation that has been around for decades. And then there, in maybe the last more recent history, last 10 years especially, it's actually branched over into the secular world. And a lot of that is tying into places where you might have some of these independent prophetic voices that are making different prophecies related to geopolitical events in the United States, and especially the last two election cycles, we saw that, or just a general convergence of politics and different elements of the Pentecostal world. That is obviously prompted a lot of conversation, and so as people are identifying what are some of the trends that have led to that, the New Apostolic Reformation comes up uh, pretty consistently as something that is a driving force behind it. And so again, what we're getting to with all of that is how the church is seeking to gain power, wield power, its relationship ultimately to power in and, and service to God's kingdom. Is it a good thing? Is it something that we should want? Is it something we should run from? Uh, it provokes a whole host of questions related to that. And that's why I think we wanted to dive into this topic today, because I find that to be a really compelling conversation that we need to wrestle with right now. Even if this one group is hard to define and pretty narrow, it is, to me, one of many branches of a broader conversation in a post-Christian society. What does the church do in relation to its influence in the world, and how should it seek to steward it, maintain it, or eventually, at times, even be willing to lay it down? So before we get into power, let me hit a couple other features of the new apostolic reformation that might provide a bit more clarity on what is this very hard-to-define thing. It's, a second key is in the title, and it's the word apostolic. Now, just like power, charismatics are not the only people who use the word apostolic, just like charismatics are not the only church that has to wrestle with how it stewards its power. This is, um, as far as I know, almost all branches of the church interact with this concept of apostolic. In fact, this is central to any church that has an Episcopal polity, and I'm not referring to the denomination Episcopal Church in the United States. I'm referring to a much broader group of churches, and this would include Methodist, Episcopal, Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, any group that recognize the authority of a bishop. These churches are are acknowledging apostolic authority. So for them, what they see is apostolic is this lineage that's been handed down from the first generation of apostles, and they are in continuity with this apostolic lineage and are its expression on the earth today. In a lot of other Protestant churches, apostolic authority is solely in the Scripture, and so the apostles are the ones who the Holy Spirit inspired to write the canon of Scripture, which was then later affirmed by the Church. So apostolic authority is tied in with the doctrine of sola scriptura, this idea that all faith and practice is only in the Scripture. In the charismatic world, there is an acknowledgement that there are spiritual gifts that are still operative. And so where maybe some branches of the church would take like the listing of gifts in Ephesians, where it's apostle, prophet, teacher, pastor, evangelist, they might say that there's only three that are operative today, the pastor, evangelist, and the teacher, and that the gift of the apostle and the prophet ceased in the New Testament era. As we've talked about in the past, that's a hard argument to make biblically, because there's no evidence that it did cease. And so while some branches of the church would say that though there is apostolic authority, that actually comes through the formal hierarchy of the church, or some element of the doctrine of the church is how apostolic authority is expressed, what charismatics are looking at is the whole range of gifts that we see in Scripture and the assumption that all of them are still at work in the church today, and therefore need to be discovered. Where we have to tease this out a little bit is is we have to ask, For a charismatic person, what does an apostolic gift or a prophetic gift actually look like? And is the claim that an apostle is the same as an apostle in the first century and carries the same authority, or are there other ways of imagining that? And so again, this would get behind some of the critique of new apostolic reformation. Now, to my knowledge, nobody is teaching that apostles or prophets today carry the same weight as an apostle or prophet who... Um, we we see in Scripture to where, in other words, where they could come along and contradict the Scripture or their words should be taken as authoritative in the same way that the Apostle Paul's words are considered authoritative. I would imagine that if any Pentecostal or charismatic ever spoke that, that they would be critiqued heavily from within their own tradition. I certainly would strongly challenge anybody who ever made a a claim like that, and I, I, I don't think I would be alone in that. I think that would be something that would uh, nothing is ever universal, but would certainly be rejected by the vast majority of the Pentecostal tradition in saying that that's the case. So you know, so for somebody who's maybe not part of this world, I, I think an unfair critique of Pentecostalism is that they're claiming new revelation on par with Scripture, when in fact the way that this tends to be worked out is that the revelation of Scripture is authoritative. And as we've even talked about, I think there can be even an acknowledgment of the Spirit's leadership and the traditions of the church, but that does not preclude ongoing revelation. It's just any ongoing revelation must always be judged by what's come before and most authoritatively in the Scripture. So in that sense, Charismatics and Pentecostals today are much closer to Protestants and um, how they understand apostolic authority in a very broad sense. So then what they're saying is there is a gifting, and the word apostle in Greek just means like sent one or messenger, there is a gifting that we see in scripture of God sending people. And a lot of times that's caught up in like a church planting or missionary gifting is how that's understood of people who God sends on mission to establish outposts of the kingdom. And these are people who carry different supernatural power to do that task, but they are part of this much larger story and they do
0: not exercise
1: authority outside of
0: it. Okay. So I'm hearing you say, Drew, that again, we have a conversation about the stewardship of, of power of authority of influence we also have a conversation around the nature of the gifts that we see maybe in Ephesians 4 11 through 13 the apostolic the prophetic and the ways that those have been expressed at different epochs of the church certainly the you know the early apostles capital a and, and some of the prophets you know we think of old testament prophets and then what's the nature of the exercise of those gifts today are they still relevant today and expressed by the spirit through the body and if so in what capacity are those the maybe the, the most common defining markers of what we're talking about here today?
1: Yes, and I think if we were going to provide the most generous critique of New Apostolic Reformation, I think this hits the heart of it, where you might have, uh, let's say you have this person who is a self-proclaimed apostle and does not have accountability because they see themselves as being graced by God to carry this authority outside of accountability structures, or even in the extreme outside of the authority of Scripture, So you have a person who is claiming this authority for themselves without accountability, and they're seeking to exercise this authority so that then they can take control and seize power in some way on a societal level. And they see that doing that is a part of God's mission. So that's maybe a caricature. Again, I don't know that anybody is quite there. There's certainly some groups or things I've heard and read that made me feel very uncomfortable because it trends too closely to that. Where you have a, a, an exam, another example is a prophet, and there was quite a few of these where they started making these very big political claims and that they had a unique insight into God's purposes. And the way they were talking was almost absolute, calling people to take very direct political action as this almost mandate from God. And there wasn't an accountability to the church. There wasn't checks and balances. Most of them, as far as I can tell, I don't even know who they are but they're kind of claiming this, this unique divine authority that's in causing people to exercise power or in a way trying to grasp power on the political level. And that's what's gotten the most attention in recent years that's uh, maybe prompted some of the dialogue that's out there. So that's, that's where this gets taken and, um, and I think very fairly provokes some concern and conversation about, okay, what is it in the Pentecostal world or charismatic world that can at times lead to behavior like that? Now, it's also worth noting that a lot of influential charismatic figures noticed that trend and actually came out with an open letter and declaration where they were essentially saying, like, though we fully believe in the prophetic gift and other gifts like this, it needs to be done in accountability to the church that no one gift can ever claim any form of absolute authority. But actually, even if you read uh, Ephesians, it's, a, it's in the spirit of mutual submission. It's under the authority of Christ. And so God has gifted the body. 1 Corinthians 12 is another great example. There are different gifts, and some of those different gifts do exercise leadership at times, but it's always under the authority of Christ and in submission to one another. And so that would be the typical standard, as far as I know, that the majority of Pentecostal charismatics would use. But there is this strand that's in the church, so how do we deal with that and make sense of it?
0: It's great. So maybe maybe give an example in just modern-day culture as we look around. Where does this play out? Yeah, so
1: that political one is a little more obvious, at least from my perspective, of like, okay, that's not okay. One that gets a little more interesting to me is let's look at a different area of society and look at media. How should a Christian relate to media? And, you know, on the one hand, uh, if you look at different approaches, one approach might be we just entirely abstain. And interestingly enough, this has been the historic Pentecostal holiness movement before that approach has actually been to abstain from culture in any way that they possibly can. You see this also in different Anabaptist traditions, where it's like, basically it's all corrupted, and as a Christian, we're going to go off and live differently, and we're going to create our own culture so that we're not influenced by the culture of the world. And I think you could even tap in historically to the monastic movement. And so I would, kind of, I would consider this broad strand of the church to be monastic in some ways. And it's this idea that the city is corrupted, we need to go out to the desert so that we can live a pure life before God, untainted from the world. So that's that would be one approach if you picture a continuum. If you swing all the way to the other side, and this might be the what people might try to consider with like New Apostolic Reformation or Dominionism or whatever label you want to put on it, it's actually that the mandate of Christians is to take over media. So in some of these circles, that might even be like, we have this divine mandate, we're going to pray these very specific prayers and exercise our spiritual authority so that God will eventually appoint some of our members so that we can actually be the ones making these decisions to influence the world. Now, you might critique that, but I mean, you think about it, how harmful is media? You know, I could look at media and I could see a tremendous amount of harm. So I think before we just purely write that view off, even though I'm not comfortable with that view, and I'll get to why in a second, uh, I think you also have to sit with the fact that there is some validity to it of shouldn't we seek to actively change corrupt structures in society? And this is where I might challenge some of the critiques related to the New Apostolic Reformation is even though I'm certainly not a part of it and very uncomfortable with a few of the, the things that we've already talked about. At the same time, I think we have to apply a consistent standard across all branches of the church. This is not the only group in Christian circles that believes that Christians need to exercise power and authority and influence to stop harm that's occurring in the world. And I think that concept in general is not something we can just write off entirely. I think we have to acknowledge, what, what do you do when it's within your power to make a positive change? And don't we want godly people? Like, wouldn't you rather have godly people at the helm of major media institutions? And rather than projecting this gospel of secularism all over the world, they're projecting something that was more positive. Like, wouldn't that be a really good thing? And I think that's compelling. Like, I'm like, man, yeah, it would be a good thing. Um, So that gets us into our question if that's a good thing, shouldn't we actively work towards it? And whereas some Christian groups might write off any form of supernatural power and they're just gonna work towards it using their own human power, if you're a charismatic, shouldn't you also work for it with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can achieve that end? Uh, you know, so I, that and there is some truth to that, and there is, I think that's not quite as, as black and white, maybe, as some people might want that to be. I think, um, on the one hand, I think we have to grapple with Christians generally don't handle it well when we're in charge of power and influence in a society. Typically, those coincide with the church's greatest periods of spiritual decline, and the church tends to do the best when we're on the outside in higher tension with society. So, uh, you know, historically, you can make that argument. But then on the flip side, the church has also been used by God as a change agent to actively work and influence society. And I believe that that is activity that occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit, whether it, the Holy Spirit credited to that or not, through the prayers of the saints. That's also a part of our tradition. So we, we have to be careful in how we understand this concept. And even where the New Apostolic Reformation I think can get blended with this unaccountable quest for power that certainly should be rejected. And I think if that's what it's labeled as, then we should be we would be wise to steer clear of it. You know, I think on the flip side, we also have to acknowledge how Christians engage with culture is a very complex topic.
0: So I hear you saying that, you know, on the one hand, complete, abstinence from the institutions of the world might be an extreme position you know at the end of at one end of the bell curve and at the other end is this notion that christian institutions need to in one sense take over these various institutions in order to affect righteousness on the earth and i hear you advocating for a position that might be somewhere in between those two and i think it might be helpful too to to note that when we talk about the church i think different people that that term's going to conjure up different images in their minds and the church as the people of God versus the church as an institution, and and I'm, I'm inferring here, Drew, we haven't talked about this previously, but I think we would be on the same page to say we're not advocating for the church as an institution to be the agent of change in the sense that it is inserted into these various areas of society, whether it's politics or media, education, and so on. Uh, however, the church as the people of God, the salt that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, that the church as an institution, its mandate in Ephesians 4, to go back to the passage on the, the apostle, the prophet, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that the church's mandate is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then Paul goes on to explain what he means by that in the next couple of verses, that the the apostle and the prophet, etc., are tasked with equipping the church, the people of God, to go out and to be the embodied followers of Jesus, I know you're going to get into this here in just a moment, Drew, but the uh, disciples, apprentices to Jesus manifesting his ways in these worldly institutions and thereby affecting change, but maybe more from a bottom-up or grassroots approach and not a top-down grasp-for-power approach. Is that Would we be kind of of one mind there, Drew? Yes, I think
1: we are, and I think... Uh, ultimately, I, I look at this, and I, I think part of it is also we have to know the hour we live in as well. And you know, I, I, there's questions you get to at times where maybe there's polls, where there's a naked quest for power, and especially that's unaccountable, where that's wrapped up in one person or one institution that believes that basically whatever they do, they are acting for God no matter what. Um, that's very alarming to me, and I think is something we need to avoid. And then I think there's another side of the poll that's this complete withdrawal from society which also I, I don't see how that represents God's purpose for the church. Instead, if we look at these as tensions we have to manage and even discern, that would be the way that I might look at it uh, of saying, what hour are we in? You know, so I'll say you know, just my own judgment this hour. If I had to lean, I'm probably leaving, leaning more monastic these days of saying, I think where we've gotten a little too cozy maybe with the systems of this world, uh, I think this might be a season for the church. And this is just my own judgment, and you could fully disagree with this. But my own judgment would be I think this is a time for us to discover what it means to be the people of God and be willing to separate out a little bit from feeling the need to fit in with the world around us and learn how, to, how do we express the kingdom of God in the church together and, and recognizing that that calls us to live as an alternative community. But I, I think you could take that too far to where you completely abandon the different spheres of society, and the church loses its prophetic voice back to culture, which I think also is not right. So I don't fully know how to handle all of that. And I I think we have to maybe be aware of trends that you see throughout church history that are unhelpful. And I think we have to be aware of things we see ongoing in our society where different ones of those expressions get taken to an extreme. But the reason why this is such an interesting topic to me is I think it does speak to, at the core, a tension we have to grapple with and wrestle with that doesn't always have an easy answer. Even if you look at, you know, maybe um, some of the biblical language, you know, what is the mission of the church? Part of it is we're reflecting Christ, and we are Christ's body on the earth, we're his household, we're God's chosen people. There's an element of that where we're called out from the world. And so our mission is to be the people of God as a witness, just like Israel was, where we're distinct, we're different. And, you know, I think that might lend itself more to the monastic, um, some of the Anabaptist traditions that... We are an alternative community in the world. So that certainly can be found, I believe, in the biblical text and in the history of the church. Another way of looking at it is the church is salt and light. And to me, this is the prophetic tradition. This is God placing believers. We're yeast mixed in with the dough. We are the flavoring of the world. We're beacons of light in the midst of darkness. And what the church does is the church is embedded in the world, but the mission of the church is to proclaim the ways of Jesus to a world that doesn't believe. And I think that's also really compelling. And you certainly see that in the history of the church. And, you know, I just look to any of the great prophets of history, you know, this is what they're doing. And, um, and I think if, if I had to maybe latch on to one image, I think that's what's happening today is there are people in every sphere of society, and some of them are people in great positions of, of influence and authority, whether that be in politics or media or business, finance, things like that. Most Christians aren't, you know, they have a relatively small sphere of influence, but what does it mean to be salt and light in this place? How do I reflect and incarnate Jesus in this place? So I'm not pulling myself out of any position in the world, but instead I'm viewing the positions I do have as a missionary calling where I'm taking Jesus to these different places. So it's almost more of a missiological prophetic view of what you do. But then lastly, you do have this idea of the kingdom of God. And so what do you do? What You know, and there's there's countries around the world today where there's stunning revival and the number of Christians there's growing at exceptional rates. I mean, there's several countries now that have Pentecostal majorities. So what does it mean to incarnate the kingdom of God when ultimately, whether you want it or not, you, you now are the majority of a country? And I think if you don't grapple with that question at all, that's probably not a good thing. So you might have to ask the question, you know, if we could go back in time to, to some of these eras where Christianity was really powerful in the United States or other places, how do you steward that influence well? And what does that actually mean to do so? That's also an important question, you know, and I think that's all, you know, whether that's kingdom imagery, I don't, you know, in my reading of scripture, I don't think that's the general posture or position of the church, but, and I don't think that that's something that the church should try to do, where we want to grow so that we can take over culture, I think is a really unhelpful thought. And I think, like I said earlier, has coincided almost always with times of deep spiritual decline, not growth. But I, I think you can, you know, you see a revival and tons of people come to faith. At some point, you have to ask the question, Um, How do we steward our influence in our society for the common good and for in service to the kingdom? And how do you do that well? That's also an important question. So you could maybe make some biblical and historical arguments for each of these different things and this biblical imagery. So I think that is where it becomes important for us to be balanced and understanding that all of those carry some biblical weight. And I think we have to look historically at where have these ideas been taken too far and where have they not been taken far enough? Like all of that has to come into play as we seek to exegete our own epic in history and how we as Christians are supposed to respond. So where I would exercise the most caution is anytime the mission of the church gets flattened and comes under some other mission in society, and this is probably what makes me the most uncomfortable with uh, any group that's, uh, that I feel like you know, maybe gets a little close to dominionism, is, is this dynamic where the mission of the church coincides with Christians having a lot of financial power, or the mission of the church coincides with Christians having a lot of media power, or certainly if the mission of the church coincides with Christians having a lot of political power. And what we've allowed for is we, you know, I think that the logic is that God is moving in the world. These are powerful things in the world, so God wants to use me to influence those things. Therefore, whatever I'm doing and ultimately me gaining more power and influence certainly is the will of God. Like, I think that's maybe the logic that goes behind that, and I find that to be really dangerous and concerning. Not that God might not use you in that way, but when that becomes our goal is to gain stuff, I think we have to be very careful. And, you know, I look back at the history of the church, where suddenly the ends start to justify the means, where... We feel like, well, certainly if I was in control, that I would be better than somebody else. And so it's okay if I cut corners here or there or whatever the case may be. You know, I think at some point we stopped reflecting Christ to the world. And, and, you know, these biblical images that I've represented here, uh, all of those have to be there. So even though we might lean on one more than another in a certain season, uh, you can't abandon those. We still have to reflect Christ to the world. We still need to be salt and light. If we don't look like Jesus, if we don't Act in his ways, and especially if we justify that because we're gaining power. I find that to be a really dangerous way of thinking and something that we need to avoid. So, insofar as that is someone's concern with the new apostolic reformation, I join them wholeheartedly. I have that deep concern as well. I don't know that that term's useful just because it is, like I said earlier, predominantly a pejorative term that's used for people to describe people. And I think a lot of people get accused of. Being a part of that, either through guilt by association, you know, where it's like they appeared at a conference, where somebody else appeared at a conference, and then later that person appeared to somebody else. It's like that kind of thing. Or because they have general charismatic beliefs that are shared with people who somebody might perceive to, to, you know, maybe more have a dominionist trait. But that doesn't mean they're linked together anymore that— Uh, you know, somebody who's Baptist is linked with everything that every other Baptist does. Like, I think that's where we have to be a lot more charitable. And, you know, I I think at times the Pentecostal charismatic world might get picked on a bit more than other traditions of the church, or at least historically, that's certainly been true. So you have to be cautious there in the terms that you use. But I, I do think it does bring into play, you know, this very significant tension of how the church gets involved in society. And then I think it also reveals maybe what are some out-of-bounds or extreme ways that are worth shining a light on. Because I do think, um, I don't know that they're as widespread as some people are concerned about, but they're certainly there and do carry influence and is worth us being aware of so that we know how to better interact with some of that thought.
0: That's great. And I would add, wherever you land on that spectrum, from this kind of monastic community that pulls away from the systems of the world all the way to this kind of Seven Mountains Dominionism, where the kingdom of God is coming on the earth, and I have an express purpose to usher the, the kingdom in in that way. Regardless, we are all called to walk in the way of Jesus and to express the posture of our engagement with society, whether it's politics, or the media, and so on needs to reflect the way that Jesus walked i think of the beatitudes so whether it's you know being poor in spirit or mourning over the brokenness of the world or meekness hungering and thirsting for righteousness mercy purity of heart peacemaking, these are the the characteristics of the people of God, or think of the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so no matter our position in society, whether a prominent position of power and influence over an entire domain of society, or whether occupying a relatively small space and having a, a smaller circle of influence, it needs to be identified by these characteristics, the ways of Jesus. And so Uh, May you, may we embody the way of Jesus in our hour today. May the church be a distilled and potent representation of the person of Jesus in the earth today. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology.